um, we, we realize is set in a particular time in history. And you look in verse 1, it's set in the time of what they say, the judges. Um, if you know anything about Israelite history, the time of the judges was before the monarchy uh, essentially was established in Israel. So before there were kings and queens. And the summary of this period uh, can be found in, in Judges 17 verse 6. Let me read it to you. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, this period is essentially a, a cyclical period. Um, because there was no king, people essentially did whatever they wanted. And often it would be evil. Uh, they didn't love their neighbor. They didn't love their God. And so often in response to people's rebellion against God, uh, acting whatever they, doing whatever they wanted, uh, God would allow foreign nations to come and attack Israel. Uh, but even as these foreign nations would come and attack Israel, God would raise powerful leaders, judges. These judges and leaders would be empowered by God's Spirit uh, to rally Israel, to fight off the enemies, and to bring stability back to this land that was in, in turmoil. However, judges, like all of us, are human, and, and so they would often die. And this would mean that Israel would just go back to living a life that they wanted to. And then God would allow foreign nations to come and invade and attack again, and the cycle would start all over again. And so this period uh, was a time in people's lives where things were very uncertain, uh, things were very unstable, and there was no real clear road to how God would really establish the kingdom that He had promised to Abraham. See, friends, the role of Ruth in all of Scripture is to teach us how God brings order out of chaos, especially this period in Judges. How God worked amidst this downward spiral of sin and idolatry uh, to establish stability within the land. Might be tempting then to think that this book is then not very relevant to our own lives. I mean, um, we're not in Israel, we, we don't have kings, what does it matter? I think actually Ruth is very powerful, it's powerfully relevant to each of our own lives. You watch the news, you hear about many wars that are raging out in our own world, uh, bringing a sense of insecurity and instability. Uh, think of our own lives, maybe an uncertain future, what will this year hold? And and you start to wonder, how stable really is my own life? See, Ruth reminds us of how God is present and active in our own lives. And that He brings restoration and hope even to the most empty and broken circumstances. I think that's why we should be paying attention to what God might say to us through this book. And so our chapter in Ruth 1 kind of really sets the scene for how God will work in the life of, of Ruth and, and Naomi. But it sets a scene of emptiness and brokenness. But amidst this scene, we are reminded of this great truth. That those who turn to God for comfort will find refuge and security. And so if you go out this morning knowing one thing, you have to know that. As you turn to God, you find refuge and security in a, in a world that is, is broken. Now, to help you, um, there's an outline in your bulletins on the inside left-hand cover. Um, we're kind of going to look at the world in, in three different ways, uh, a world that is broken. And so firstly, we're going to look at life in this broken world. So our first point, life in a broken world. To kind of see this world, look there with me, open your Bibles, verses 1 to 5. Uh, the world that we enter immediately in these first few verses is, is bleak, is dark. It's filled with emptiness and despair, isn't it? And in these opening verses, the author kind of highlights this 
uh, by looking at the lack of two big things. Uh, the first is the food. Look there in verse 1. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So we, we know that this is intense famine that kind of uh, strikes this land. And so to survive, people kind of essentially run away, uh, looking for greener pastures, so to speak, in the land of Moab. Now in the 21st century, uh, with planes, um, with the internet, living in a foreign country is actually a very easy and exciting experience. Uh, you get to do something in the unknown, you get to experience fun cultures, new customs. It's, it's kind of fun. But back then, it took ages to travel to a distant land. Uh, you ended up being in a really uncomfortable in a foreign territory. Uh, you were an outsider where no one really cared for you. Multiculturalism wasn't really big back then. And so to move to another country was really a desperate move. The last resort in order to stay alive. That's, that's how bad this famine was. You didn't do it just on, on a whim. This famine gives us this vision of, of a world that is broken and, and empty. But if, if famine and, and resettlement into a foreign land isn't hard enough, look what happens to this family. In verse 3, we read, As they've settled in this land, Elimelech the father dies. But in contrast to this tragedy, there's kind of good news in the next verse. Their sons, Marlon and Killing, get married to Moabite women. You know, it's a big celebration whenever there's a wedding. But then there's more tragedy, death, right? Verse 5, after 10 years of marriage, the sons die as well. To live in this society without husbands or without sons was a scary place for a widow like Naomi. Uh, she would have lacked anyone to provide for her, to pr- protect her, especially in a, in a male-dominated society. But see, this wasn't the worst thing about the situation she found herself in. And so the second thing I think the author tries to highlight, it's this lack of family legacy that we see in this passage. See, if you were an ancient reader and you heard this story, something would have really sort of made you sort of stick up and pay attention. It's the fact that these, these men, the sons, Marlon and Killian, were married for 10 years, but there's no mention of grandchildren. They would have been asking, well, where, where are the children? See, if you read the Bible, this image of barrenness, this, this idea that women are unable to have children, is an image of lifelessness, an image of emptiness. It's so often associated with God withholding His blessing from His people. And so the reason it's bad not to, to read about any children was meant that your family wouldn't essentially continue. Your family would, would be as if it didn't, didn't exist. You wouldn't be able to pass on any inheritance. You wouldn't be able to pass on the family name. The lack of children here is a reminder that the world Naomi occupies is a world that is broken and empty. It's a horrible place. The weight of suffering, I think, is highlighted in verse 5. If you have an NIV Bible open with you, uh, you'll likely read, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. If you were to read a more literal translation of of Scripture, like the ESV, for example, uh, you would read that it's the woman was left without her two sons. See, Naomi's loss is so great that the author just kind of reduces her to the woman. Not a derogative term, but it's trying to kind of express the emptiness she feels. And so in these first few verses, verses 1 to 5, it's succinct and compact in its portrayal of tragedy and suffering in this world. Do you know, there's no reason why the famine occurred. There's no reason why these men died. And it's these economy of words that lead us to feel the full weights of pain 
for Naomi and, and for Ruth as well. Without any kind of extra information, we, we don't get distracted by the particulars, but we feel the full weight and force of suffering and tragedy kind of keep continually hitting us. I feel weights of life in a broken world. And so the tragedy is there, right? Naomi enters Moab in the hope of a better life. And she seems to have lost everything. And I think what we're really supposed to kind of take away from these first few verses is to wonder, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? Unfortunately, uh, all of us aren't able to read Hebrew. But if you were, there'd be something really interesting you would start to see in these first few verses. See, the word Bethlehem, the town where, uh, where they, they had come from, actually translates literally as house of bread. And so it's a bit ironic, the place that's called house of bread, which is known to have abundant crops, is empty, is desolate. Naomi, her name means pleasant. We start to see at the end of the story, she wants to be called bitter. The complete opposite of that, because everything she's experienced in this world is horrible. And lastly, Elimelech, the name means my God is king. Isn't it ironic, the one who says his God is king, leaves the land of the king only to die. See, we're supposed to read this and wonder, what is God up to? Now, you may never have faced famine, but it's quite possible that you faced death in your life, maybe a loved one. And even if you've been spared by that, it doesn't take too long to live in this world to face some kind of disappointment, some kind of despair, that we start to say, God, where are you? How could you allow that to have happened? Don't you care about me? Have you ever said that? A few years ago, I was doing um, some training, and part of this training was um, to more effectively understand homeless people. And so we did this exercise to kind of get ourselves into the mindset of someone who was homeless. And so the exercise went something like this. We had a number of slips of paper, and on those slips of paper, we were to write down things that were um, really meaningful, um, things that were really important to us. So give you an example, um, things like friends, family, uh, maybe our career, maybe our health, um, all those kinds of things. But we also are asked to consider kind of things that maybe weren't as tangible. Maybe things like independence, maybe our reputation or the ability to control our future. And so the exercise went a bit like this. We'd write them all down on separate slips of paper and then we'd walk around. And it was kind of like musical chairs, but every now and then you'd bump into someone. And they would uh, take a piece of paper from you. Um, you'd sort of hold out what you had and they'd look and go, I'm going to take your friends or I'm going to take your reputation. And after a while, it's kind of funny because you're like, oh, I take my reputation, I've still got money, and I can buy my friends or something like that. But over time, as the numbers kind of whittle down your slips of paper, you end up with like one thing left. You're feeling a bit vulnerable. And then that was taken as well. There was this kind of real emptiness that you kind of felt. And it was meant to help us see that kind of often this is what happens to people who are homeless. Everything is kind of just taken from them. And I wonder if you were placed in that similar situation, what would make you feel empty, uh, make you feel uh, full of despair? It might be um, a, a relationships, a lacking in popularity. You fear 
that people won't like you. You fear not having a community around you to support you. Maybe you would question God if you experienced suffering, the death of a loved one. Maybe you're diagnosed with some horrible illness. Or maybe you would feel empty and desperate and, and curse God if some dream you've always held dear to your heart was taken away. For some people, it's the inability to have children. For some people, it's finding out they'll never marry someone. It could be anything. Whatever it is, life in this world can, can quickly bring us to a point where we're so tempted to become bitter against God and curse Him. And so that's why I think this story, a story that is thousands of years ago, has amazing contemporary significance. Because it's a story that reminds us that God restores those who are empty, those who are filled with despair. It's a story that teaches us how to navigate life in a world that that seems so broken. And while this book title, or the name of the book is called Ruth, really the main focus you'll see over the next four weeks is the story of Naomi and how she becomes restored from her, her horrible situation in these first five verses. These first few verses are meant to draw us in and ask, how, how will God restore Naomi from the, the situation she finds herself in? And I think more pointedly, it's meant for us to ask then, will God work the same way in my own life? Well, it's life in a broken world. Why don't we think about navigating a broken world? That's our second point in our outlines. See, against the background of possibly seemingly God doesn't care, look what happens in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them food, she and her daughters become prepared to return home. See, God appears, doesn't he? He hears the cries of his people and he responds and essentially brings food. In response to this news, Naomi, her two daughter-in-laws, uh, they head back to Judah, back to Bethlehem, where Naomi grew up. It's likely, though, that, that part of their way into the journey, Naomi pleads and, and tells her two daughter-in-laws that you should go home. You should go home to the land of Moab. Her hope is, is they will find contentment, not with her, but back in their homeland. What exactly is she hoping for? Well, look with me, verse 9. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Somehow in Moab, their lives will be fuller than with her. Um, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, you would have heard about a king called Midas. Uh, this king, uh, mythology tells us that everything he touched turned to gold. That'd be pretty awesome. Um, you could like touch this lectern and then sell it on eBay and be like an instant millionaire or type thing. Um, but that's how, we, if you've heard the term Midas touch, that's where we get it from. Everything that, that people do, like they just succeed in. Um, you know, you've got that friend that's kind of annoyingly smarter than you, then they like probably have more money than you, they're better looking than you, everything's better than you, and you like get really bitter at them. Um, they've got the Midas touch, they just succeed in life, and it becomes really frustrating. You just want them to, to fail a bit, to take them down a peg. But there are other people who I think have the, the inverse of that. They've got the anti-Midas touch. Everything they do is just horrible, and you don't want to steer, you want to steer clear of them, because if they touch you, your life will just turn to, to ruin. See, in many ways, I think that's, that's Naomi's mindset. She's got the anti-Midas touch. She feels cursed by God. At every turn in her life, the things kind of break down. People die. There's famine. Nothing, nothing good. And so she kind of tries to encourage her, her two daughter-in-laws to kind of go home. 
she's, she's doing a few things. She's kind of removing any kind of formal obligation that they might feel to her because they had married into her family. She's saying, it's okay. I, I, I release you. But what I think she's also doing is this. She's trying to give them a fresh start. She's trying to create distance between herself, which kind of encompasses suffering and brokenness with her two daughter-in-laws, allowing them to kind of steer clear of any potential future tragedy. See, Naomi believes that restoration for her daughter-in-laws, well, it comes in the land of Moab. See, in Moab, they can return home. They can likely, uh, they're pretty young probably, they can find husbands, they can raise a family, they can find a better life. And so we read in verses 11 to 13 that she kind of makes up this crazy scenario. Imagine if I was like, I'm married today and have children. Would you wait? They're likely, you know, fairly medium age, 30, I don't know. Maybe wait 15 more years, 45 to marry a 20-year-old. That'd be a bit odd, but that's what she's kind of saying. Like, you know, imagine you were like 20 now and marrying my daughter that was just born. That's just weird, okay? It's just, it's just uh, uh, would you do it? No, you wouldn't do it. See, Naomi's basically saying the present day, there's good opportunity to marry, to have kids, to, to have a future. Why trade that for a future? A humanly impossible scenario where you can kind of find fulfillment in my family, which is just filled with utter tragedy and ruin. See, underlying all of Naomi's um, communication, the dialogue here, I think is verse 13. Look what she says. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. She feels the Lord is out to get her. And fast forward right to the end, she kind of reiterates this. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. See, friends, she believes the path to restoration in this broken world is to get as far away from her as possible. But she's also implicitly saying something else. Don't just get her far away from me. Get her far away from this God. See, in many ways, I think this is the lie that Satan tempts us with today. Do you feel dissatisfied? Do you want something more out of this life? Then you've got to get away from this God because he's just going to spoil your fun. So often in our search to become satisfied, in our search to combat the emptiness we feel in this world, our hearts turn away from God. We seek to find hope away from God in the world. Is that possible? That we're tempted to turn away from God and follow this world? In the workplace, so, so often it's easy to do whatever you can in order to get up ahead, to earn more money, to gain more influence, because maybe God just doesn't have your best interests at heart. In relationships, you're willing to, to relax morals and ethics in order to kind of get a quick fix of adrenaline because God really isn't out for your pleasure and your joy. He just wants to give you rules to kind of curtail your fun. And maybe it's even at home. You willingly become impatient with outbursts of anger, whether it's against your parents or against uh, your kids or against your spouse, whatever it is, in order to kind of carve out that peace of life that you really want, that joy, that, that, that fullness. And so I want to ask you, friends, this morning, where is God in your path to restoration and renewal? How is God present so that you may find greater, greater rest and, and joy? And I think this passage reminds us of the hope that is ultimately found in our God. It leads us to our last point, a steadfast love in a broken world. See, after Naomi urges her daughter-in-laws back, 
Orpah, uh, with great reluctance, I think, and sadness. See, I think, I, it's likely they really cared for each other. It's not likely she goes, yep, see you later, I'm gone. With, with heartache, she, she turns away from her mother-in-law, they embrace, and they head back, and she heads back to, to Moab. But what does Ruth do? Ruth, however, refuses to go, right? She, she clings to her mother-in-law. It's this amazing kind of statement of commitment to her. And then she speaks, and her words are drenched and charged with, with sacrifice and love. Look there with me, verse 16 and 17. Look at what Ruth says. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. See, Ruth binds her future to Naomi's future. She'll go and live where Naomi will ultimately settle down. She'll adopt her, her culture and customs. This isn't like a quick exchange. You know how like at uni you go on exchange, you do fun things for six months, but then you can go back home, it's fun. No, this is essentially her giving up everything that is comfortable, everything that she understands, her family, her people, her customs, her traditions, it's all gone to follow Naomi. And in doing so, Ruth professes that Naomi's God will be her God. And it's to this God she swears allegiance until, until death. You must see how amazing this commitment is. Her, her devotion leads her to cast aside any concern for her own security, her own future. She connects herself to the uncertain future of this bitter widow. Who would do that? She commits herself to enter a land where she will be an outsider and a foreigner. As I said, multiculturalism wasn't big back then. It wasn't fun to be the outsider. You would have likely been open to racial abuse, discrimination. It would not be a pleasant experience. And so we're supposed to see here the contrast between how Ruth responds to the situation and how Orpah responds to the situation. Orpah turns away from Yahweh, the living God, to find fulfillment elsewhere, where Ruth turns towards God with no real hope of personal payoff, no real cultural responsibility to bind her there demonstrating a steadfast love. I think Naomi's life just becomes that little bit brighter as Ruth binds herself to hers. Ruth's actions here become the foretaste of restoration and hope for Naomi that we see played out in the rest of the book, how God starts to bring, bring joy and happiness to a woman who considers herself bitter. But see, what we're all supposed to recognize here is that even as Ruth's actions foreshadow God's care, God's commitment to Naomi, Ruth's actions kind of foreshadow and highlight a greater truth. That is, God is committed to his people, not just Naomi. He's committed to those that are empty and desperate because of lives in a broken world, because of their sinful state. God is deeply committed to renewing, to washing clean. See, in Ruth's actions, we see one who binds herself to one who is afflicted, to one who is weak and empty and destitute. As we read this book in light of all of Scripture, we recognize her actions give us a glimmer of what Jesus will do. Jesus, just like Ruth, out of the steadfast love he has for God's chosen people, will bind his destiny to those who are weak and afflicted by sin. You see the similarities? Ruth binds herself to Naomi, seeking to love and comfort her, willingly experiencing any of the associated pain and suffering that may come from this God who is seemingly out to get Ruth, uh, Naomi. Sorry. Jesus does the same thing. 
binds himself to God's people, seeking to love and comfort them, willingly taking upon himself not a hypothetical or potential displeasure of God, but the actual wrath of God as he dies on the cross. See, friends, Jesus is the hope for the Christian in their despair. His death and resurrection means we're granted citizenship in God's kingdom. His perfect obedience means we're adopted into God's family. And as part of God's family, we, we don't experience emptiness and despair, even though our lives may kind of say otherwise. God pours into us immeasurable blessing in, in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we are bound to by faith. And as part of that, we experience all that is good that God would give us. Because of Jesus, we can know that our future is ultimately secure, is ultimately one of, of hope, of confidence. And so just as Ruth gave up everything to be bound to Naomi and her God, true hope, friends, we are to be reminded this morning, is with God, not apart from Him. In the coming weeks, we'll kind of break down a bit, bit further what this comfort looks like. What does it mean to find all this restoration in God? But this week, I want, to, I want us to kind of just settle on one thing. I think that because of, of Jesus and what He has done, in moments when your life feels empty, when you feel full of despair, look to Jesus and know that He loves you. May that be the confidence that turns you to God and cries out to Him. But, but what does it look like? What does it really look like to engage with God in our emptiness and despair? I think Naomi's words are really instructive here. See, in her bitter cries, there's this like rawness to it. This kind of authenticity that, that helps us feel the full weight of her life, of suffering. But amidst this bitterness, I think what we should note is this, this faith. A faith to believe that God is present. It's not because of God's absence that all this stuff has happened. It's because God is present. He just doesn't like her. Well, that's what she thinks anyway. She has this faith to believe that God is there and can do things if he wants to. I think Naomi challenges us to engage God in our moments of emptiness and despair. As we engage God, we, we are to recognize two aspects of doing this. Our posture and our plea. So as we finish, let me just um, talk about those two things. First, our plea. Imagine if you were at a prayer meeting. In about a month's time, we have our first prayer meeting in February, our church prayer meeting. And, um, and someone rocks up and, and starts to pray, pray a prayer just like Naomi. I wonder how uncomfortable you might feel. You might be put off a bit by that person's directness, seemingly lack of respect. Would you may, may even be a bit uneasy by their tone, the rawness. I think Naomi's words here challenges us to come before God, not with a pretense, but with a real freedom to express ourselves really as life is to express our doubts, maybe about whether God is truly good, to express our anguish, our fear of life in a world that is hard. Are you able to do that? Does your relationship with God give you the bandwidth to honestly come to Him inquiring about Him? Does your relationship with God give you permission to doubt? Or has your relationship with God become so domesticated, so sanitized, that you feel it's unchristian to express any doubt, fear, or sadness before God. I think we're challenged here to boldly approach God, speaking from the depths of our own hearts. But I think, importantly, our pleas to God must be guided by our 
posture towards God. We're to approach God with a posture of humility and not pride. Let me explain the difference. Um, Imagine this. Imagine you were faced uh, with a tragic diagnosis. You went to the doctors tomorrow and they told you about an illness that they have detected on your uh, regular blood tests. And this illness will be a lifelong, though not um, fatal illness. You'll, you'll live it to the end of your life. You'll live, but your lifestyle is going to be hampered for the rest of your life. Uh, you'll struggle to eat, do even the most basic of things, to eat food, uh, change clothes, take a shower. You'll be dependent on others. So I think someone with pride, the proud person, will express their doubts to God, but they'll place God on the witness stand, interrogating God about His actions and His purposes. God, if you're really good and loving, you wouldn't allow this. God, you can't be trusted. It's obvious based on what has happened to me. Pride causes us to stand over and above God, judging Him for what we believe is right and wrong. It's this inability to... to, to see how God might use a situation of of potential brokenness for our good and joy. This posture of pride itself quickly leads to bitterness, corrupting our relationship with God as as we distance ourselves from Him. But humility, humility on the other hand is different. See, it too calls us to express our doubts to God, but it looks to learn as a creature before their Creator. Through humility, we seek to understand the, the ways of an infinite and omniscient God. It might look like this. God, this does not feel like a good thing. But it makes me wonder whether you are good. But I know that you are. Please help me understand your ways in all of this. You might say, God, I, how can I trust you? How can I trust you after what I've seen? You've disappointed me. You've let me down. Help me to see your steadfast love in all this, even though it feels like I've been abandoned by you. See, humility places us rightly before God. It calls our hearts to faithfully respond to Him, creating us an opportunity to experience and know a God who seeks to satisfy us, especially when we feel all is lost. Life in this broken world will inevitably tempt us to feel bitter against God. I think that's the sinful condition of us. But as we journey through Ruth, I want you to see that Naomi's story is one of redemption from her bitterness. And as we see that, I hope that you have the same faith in God. As we look to Jesus on the cross, we're reminded that even though our temptation is to be bitter, we're called to find comfort in God, to express ourselves to Him in our our rawness and authenticity with a posture of humility. I pray that as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1, that God will be a God of comfort, that you too would find him in that moment. Let me pray that we would be people like this. Oh God, you um, sometimes disappoint us, let us down. Life in a broken world is like that. And so I pray that you would give us eyes of faith um, to seek and turn to you as those who trust that you are still good, that you're still loving, which is exemplified by Jesus on the cross. Help us to be people who turn to you and find all joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.